You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn, that is Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Verse 11, and they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like garments, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Chapter two, verse one. Therefore, and here's where the the writer of Hebrews starts becoming the preacher here. He's gonna start preaching at you. Therefore, he says in chapter two, verse one, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, there's a famous verse you may have heard, verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who have heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit now distributed according to his will. And then verse five, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And then hopefully Christmas day we'll look at this next verse, what is man that you are mindful of him? But in in this chapter, I'm gonna just open up in prayer before we kind of dive into this. Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord, for this time. I think, Lord, even as my mind is is going many different places, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to focus today on your word. May you be central. Lord, as we looked in Colossians, that may you be the center of all things. And now as we look in Hebrews, Lord, that you would be better than all things, that you would, in our mind and in our worship and our lives, you would truly be superior in our lives, that we would worship you as such. God, help us to lift you up today. Help us to elevate who you are. God, help us to look to you, fix our eyes to, to, to walk upon uh, on this earth as we look up to the hills from where our help comes from. We look to you, God. 
And today, God, we, we worship you. We worship you during this Christmas season as we reflect on all that you have done and given to us and how you have come and you have dwelt among us. You, are, you, are, you have become flesh. God, you are amazing and we praise you for this. Lord, help us to focus on your word. Help us to allow it to uh, take root within our hearts. May we draw nearer to you as we encounter who you are through the scriptures. And God, may you open our, our hearts to be willing to receive the engrafted word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this is the book of Hebrews as we've been beginning to read here. Hebrews is a unique book we looked at last week. We looked a little bit of the introduction, so I won't go through it all. Uh, but we looked a little bit of an introduction through this chapter and through this book because it is unique in the sense that we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, we took some guesses last week, uh, but we know that the Lord is the author of all of scripture, and so yet who penned it? Who was uh, kind of is that personality behind this book? We're not positive as to who. Uh, but there is a, a definite purpose here in the writing of this book that he's writing to uh, Jewish Christians uh, who are scattered abroad and most likely enduring uh, a great deal of persecution at this time. And so he's writing a letter, as it's said in this book, uh, almost a word of encouragement or a, a letter of exhortation, as it says in other voices. And so as I, as I alluded to earlier, there's a, there's a definite sense of creating a theological foundation on which to stand amidst the persecution and suffering that you might find yourselves in, but also then remembering that, hey, hold on to that theological foundation. Hold on to the person of Jesus Christ that is your cornerstone, because right now it seems like your world is being shaken. You ever feel like that? Maybe the last year or two maybe feels like that for all of us, where we feel shaken and so in this passage, we've received, in this book and other places, we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, right? And so this is th something that he's challenging us to hold fast onto. And in this chapter, chapter two, we're gonna look at it at the end. He says, do not drift away from these things. Hold on to them, cling to them. They are rock solid. And so what he's doing is building a case for you, building a case for all of us to recognize that Jesus is the cornerstone of all that we believe and he is rock solid and he is something worthy to be held on to. In fact, I think even when Nate Parks was here a few weeks ago, he preached on this kind of similar idea that when our alignment has gone out of whack, when we don't know where to turn, north, south, east, west, we're not sure where to go, we need to turn and he used this pulpit. And I don't know if you guys remember the illustration, but he said to look on this and to hold on to it that it's rock solid, it's something that is dependable, it's something we can rely upon. And even though there are competing interests, there are competing things in our lives trying to draw our attention away, saying that this is more important or this is greater or this is that, he's saying fix our eyes to Jesus, hold on to him because Jesus is worth it. He was there in the beginning, he will be there in the end. He has no beginning, he has no end, he is eternal and he is the eternal son of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. And so what we're gonna do just to begin is kind of start in verse three and kind of run through this chapter. We're gonna look at kind of the name of Jesus to begin with. I think it's a great place to start. In chapter uh, one, verses one and two, he's talking about how God has spoke a long time ago through the fathers and through the prophets, but today, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He speaks son. Remember that from last week? And the, the son of God is who we're looking at. And he's the heir of all things and he created the world. And then in verse three, it gives us this name of Jesus, really as we see in verse four, that the name of Jesus is more excellent than anything else. 
And he says that in verse four, but he's been building the case here in verse three and other passages here, but he's saying, really, verse three, he says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by a word of his power. By making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God, having become as much superior to the angels as a name that he, Jesus, has has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The name of Jesus is far greater, more superior the word is even. You know, the supremacy, the superior. And I know many of you are from the UP or Michigan. You guys should get this, right? Lake Superior, right? Is far greater than any of the other lakes. Actually, I don't really know if there's like a competition between the lakes and those people as to which lake is better. Superior is far bigger though. It's far greater. And this is a sense, this bigness, this greatness, this majesty of Jesus is so superior that the, I feel like it's even the authors, is, the author of Hebrews is grasping at a way to try his best to describe to you the greatness of God as we witness it through Jesus Christ. His name his name is more excellent. I like that word. He's excellent. You know, maybe you've heard traditionally what we'll say, um, you know, when you meet a dignitary or back in the day, yes, your excellency, right? You ever heard of that? Hello, your excellency uh, is used as an, addre- an address to refer to someone with a higher rank above you, a king or a queen your majesty or your excellency, right? Um, A way to refer to someone who we respect, someone who you are deferring through their title, they have received a certain level of prominence above. And yet at the same time, every time you refer to them, they're just, just a man, they're just a person. And yet when we talk about Jesus, there is a certain excellency as to who he is. There is a certain level of being on top that none of us can really grasp and understand. There's a, there's a level of, of beginning and end and eternal power that is above all. In fact, this word excellency, I was looking it up, it comes from this sense of ex and cell or kel, which is like a, a, a European word in a variety of different language that revolves around a hill. It talks about being on top of the hill. And then I was playing with my kids in the snow yesterday and it brought back memories of always building those huge piles of snow and playing king of the hill, right? You guys know that? You guys always play king of the hill? In fact, in my school, we played king of the hill so much in these massive things. Eventually, the teachers in elementary class had to out... Uh, to rule out, we weren't allowed to play King of the Hill anymore because there were so many kids going to see the nurse and the doctors during those times. I still remember that time, like what? They don't let us do anything around here, you know? They ruled out, they wouldn't let us play King of the Hill because it was way too rough um, after a few kids went to the emergency room, so it was a lot of fun. Uh, I still remember that, but this idea, the King of the Hill, who's on the top? Who's the King of the Hill? This passage is saying there's nobody else up top but Jesus, God himself. They find there is a certain excellency. There is a certain top and prominence to God that we are to look at and to our only response, as we'll see in this message today, our only response to that that kingness, that eternal, that greatness, that king of the hill is to worship him. That is our response, is to worship the, the one. The one who, as we looked at last week especially, is the radiance of the glory of God. It is, as we look at him, we see Jesus, the radiance. It is as if if he beams with light. He's the exact imprint of his nature, the very identity, as we looked at the visible image of the invisible God. And this 
visible image, the exact imprint, the radiance of the glory of God does not remain aloof that we worship but comes down to us and then takes on our sin and it says he makes purification for our sins. It's a beautiful statement of, of Jesus taking the cross and his blood being the payment price. He, uh, you could say, atones for our sins. He pays the price and then he sits in authority having done so. For as it says, he, he after making purifications for the sins, he ascends and sits down. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's this idea that he sits down. This is verse three here at the end. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty of God. He sits down. Sitting down of this completion and this, this conquering power. This sitting down upon the right hand carries with it a a level and a measure of authority and power and respect at the right hand of the throne, that there is a kingly authority here that he exemplifies over all of this, an authority that he has. He sits in authority, and it's at this name that as Jesus sits in authority in this place, he, has, uh, he is worthy to be worshiped and it's at this name that we fall down, that we worship, that he should be highly exalted and we bow down to him. In fact, uh, maybe you're familiar with the passage in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse eight gives us a sense of this passage and a view from it. It says, and being found in human form. Right, this is the Christmas time. This is the incarnation. Being found in human form that he dwelt. He was born in a manger. He took on flesh. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even the death, the gruesome, the terrible death on a cross. Therefore, God has what? Highly exalted him. Has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. Right? That is above every name. So that at that name, now Jesus sits at the right hand of God, that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our response to the name of Jesus. And I wanted to look at that name, especially as we look at it in relation to Christmas time, as we think about the name of Jesus. I think it'd be fitting for us to look in Matthew chapter one, where the name is given. The name is specifically and expressly communicated to Joseph, to Mary here. Matthew chapter one, verse 18, speaking of the birth of Jesus, and specifically why this name is given. The name of Jesus being very important here. Matthew 1, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Verse 20 says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and I love this phrase, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the prophet had said. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, who will be to us God with us. And eventually they called him, it says he was born, he gave birth, and he he called him Jesus. So what is this name? What's in a name? The name of Jesus is known from east to west these days. 
The entire world knows the name of Jesus, whether in the right light or not. I was reading an article that we talked about, I think Kevin DeYoung wrote it, and he said, he was talking about how it's estimated that there are over 6,000 languages have the name of Jesus within it. And even today, we support different groups, the seed company that are around the world translating the Bible, even into the finer dialects that do not have a copy of the scripture, to one day, hopefully, in every language and dialect to have the scripture in their own language. But to think about the amount of people and cultures and languages all over the earth and across time who have expressed worship to the name of Jesus. Yet in this time, the name of Jesus didn't necessarily command the worship and respect that we might think of it as today. Philippians had been written at that time that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. For in that time, the name of Jesus was actually a rather common name. Not like today, Bob or Tim or Rob or Matt or John or Jesus, right? <laughs> I didn't mean to call you guys out who have those names, but uh, the, the, these names there were common names, you could say. Jesus was a common name even during that time. In fact, we looked at just a few weeks ago when we were finishing up Colossians, Colossians 4.11 says, and, and speak to my friend, Paul says, Jesus, he says, who is called Justice. I think they've probably recognized at that time, even among the early church, that like, hey, my name is Jesus. They started switching their name, and so everyone just know, knew him as Justice. And so th- this is a common name that we see happen even among uh, the people. The name of Jesus, comparatively, though, when we took look at these two people, the person of Justice and the person who we think of as Jesus, there's no comparison. It's not even close And in a moment, we're gonna look at how Jesus uh, compares to even the most angelic name that you could ever imagine, Gabriel and Michael. Even the great angels are nothing in comparison to the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus, even though in a name, there can be many things that are represented. I mean, think about my name. My name is Jordan. Hi, how you doing? The name of Jordan doesn't really represent much for me, just it's me, right? It's just me, little old Jordan here in Jaffer, New Hampshire. And yet, when you think of the word Jordan, it could mean a whole bunch of other things, right? Michael Jordan, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or how about some Air Jordans, right? <laughs> okay, I'm not wearing those today. But um, you, know, you, you can have a, a name that represents far bigger things, a massive brand. Maybe some would say the greatest basketball player of all time by saying simply the word and the name Jordan, right? MJ, right? Okay, well, I'm just gonna, gonna, they call me PJ, so don't have to, all right. Um, So uh, that's what Kale makes fun of me as. I just shared that, and I just, that's bad, and now people are gonna start doing that. Okay, so PJ, Pastor Jordan, right? Um, You got this, this name, it represents simply just me, or it could represent the brand, Michael Jordan and all that. My last name, Moody, right? In fact, in, in college, most of my friends just called me Moody. That was it. It was fitting, right? Um, but, but the word Moody is just a last name. It's just my last name. But it could also represent my, my grandfather or my father, who were great men of the faith, who, who, who had a legacy that founded a Christian school here in Dublin like 60 years ago and, and, and lived a life dedicated to God and ministry. And the name Moody, in some circles, represents what they did and, what, and their life and, and, and all that they gave to the service of others in establishing a school and training Christian leaders, and so the name Moody can just mean me, but it can also represent my entire family line. Or the name Moody could even be leveled up again, as I often get asked, are you related to DL, right? D.L. Moody, 
the great evangelist, known even, yes, as the McClurg brothers said earlier, even known across the ocean into faraway lands that even in Europe people know D.L. Moody. Like people across the world know of him as a great evangelist of Northfield, Massachusetts and of of Chicago and spent time uh, preaching in England and all other places. And so the name Jesus could be a, a regular old person like justice or it could mean the savior of the entire world and your only hope, the person of Jesus, the name to which we will bow. For the name of Jesus, we know of as in the Greek here and in the Hebrew, the name Jesus is compared to the likeness into the name Joshua, Yehoshua, Yahweh, Jehovah. The word is Jesus and Joshua are the same. The, the, the word, the name Jesus actually means the Lord saves or Yahweh saves or the Lord is salvation. As we looked in Matthew, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save. He will save the people from their sins because Jesus is our salvation. Luke 1, Luke 1 even speaks of, of Simeon in the temple I believe it's in the context of giving Jesus here at the temple and presenting him. And, and, and it's, it's when Simeon beholds Jesus and holds Jesus in his arms for the first time, he, he upholds him. What is it that Simeon says? It says in Luke 1, 29, and Simeon in the temple at Jesus' presentation here, it says Simeon beholds the Jesus, uh, the, that Jesus with his own eyes and he took up the child in his arms and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And get this, for my eyes have seen your salvation. His eyes look into Jesus and he sees the salvation of the world. A child. It's through the name of Jesus that was common among people at that time that this becomes, you could say, the most uncommon name of all time. He is God in flesh, veiled in flesh. I love how it says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus, Savior of the world. The Lord is salvation. Is our Emmanuel. Is God with us. The name of Jesus would now be a, a, a sounding instrument, really, in a sense. You could say that at that name, like a horn that would be blown, that, that an instrument that is played of which all mankind would call upon and receive salvation. Romans 10, 9 speaks of this, that because simply, if you would just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe on him, you shall be saved. It's as simple as that. It would now be at that name, the name of Jesus, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's at the common name of Jesus that it becomes a very uncommon thing. The second person of the Trinity takes on flesh, becomes our Emmanuel and our Savior, and he becomes then, for those of us who follow him, Christ the Lord. The name of Jesus, there's nothing like it. And so the author of Hebrews goes on this lengthy uh, explanation of comparing this name to the name of angels, you could say. He's, he's likening things that he knows these people are struggling to place in rank and order as to who they give their worship to. And he's saying even the greatest thing that you can imagine, even the history of the Jewish people of all the, the angels represent, they do not even compare to the person of Jesus. 
Actually, in Hebrew tradition and rabbi teaching, it was said that the, that the angels dispensed the word of God and the law and the Torah to Moses. And so in here, Jesus is being compared even against to the law and to the Torah and to Moses and to others and to the angels that gave of that that they don't even compare because Jesus is the beginning of all of that. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant. It is in the new covenant that we walk being fulfilled, not necessarily lesser or worse, but in the fact that now it's been completely revealed in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. And the study of angels, this is a lengthy passage that speaks into angels in some sense where, in fact, if you study systematic theology, there's a whole, usually, chapter dedicated to angelology or the study of angels. It's a very unique kind of finer point thing. We won't get into it too much today. But the basic point for us is to recognize that here, angels are important. Yes, in the scripture we see them, and even especially around Christmas time. We just had a Christmas play and kids were dressed up as angels, right? And, and we know that angels are so important. And it was at, at the birth of Jesus, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. We see that, that even the heavens declared the glory of God. They were filled with the light of angels, the messengers of God. And yet every time someone comes in contact with an angel, there's often fear at the, the fiery power, you could say, that's before them. And yet always from the angel, a direction of that worship, that you don't worship me. I am a messenger of the Most High. You worship the one of which has created all things. It is Jesus, Emmanuel, the Son of God. It is God, it is Yahweh. And so here he's building a case for us to recognize that it is Jesus from the beginning. And so he does this great angelic contrast and he asks questions. You could say it's like the Hebrew writer here is, right, is kind of presenting in a courtroom. He's like a lawyer. I know that's a scary thing to say. Someone's like a lawyer here. But all right, he, he's like a lawyer in the sense saying that he's questioning. He's adding questions. If you look through that next couple of verses, if you look through verses five through, through 14, you'll see question mark and question mark and question mark. He's asking questions in comparison. He's playing a lesser to greater game. Where he says, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've forgotten you. Forgotten you. Who, to which of the angels did he say that? Oh, to none of them? Okay, well then next. Again, who did he ever say, I will be him, his father, and he shall be to me a son? Oh, in verse six, and who was ever called one of the angels? Did he ever call him a firstborn? No, he didn't. Did, did he ever say to worship the angels? No, he never said that. He said to worship Jesus. And so he's asking these questions that we're supposed to answer. In fact, every question he asks is a quote as well from the Old Testament. So one of those hyperlinks. And so in fact, he has eight different quotations that I could find. There are others, but really eight major ones. I'm not gonna be able to go through in detail all of them for certain we don't have time. But, but he goes in making a case, saying the first thing ultimately here is in verse five. He, he is making the case that Jesus is the divine son of God. And this is a quote from Psalm 2-7 when he asks that in verse five. And then he, he kind of builds on that in the next one. There's two parts to verse five. And he actually quotes from Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14. He quotes from Samuel and it's a passage around David when the Lord is making a covenant with David and talking about the temple of God and talking about his, his inheritance and talking about this sense and he quotes from that passage saying, look, this one who will come after you, David, when you die, you're gonna rest with your fathers and when you die, I'm gonna raise up from your offspring someone who will rule on the throne forever. And David's like, wow, right? That sounds amazing. 
and we speak into this, where now the writer of Hebrews is taking that quotation from 2 Samuel, tying it in here and relating it to that person who will rule on that throne forever from the line of David is Jesus Christ. He's king forever. And that he is also the divine son of God. He is eternal, for God is his father. He is of the same nature of God. He is divine. In verse five, the second part, he, you know, he's divine son. He's the heir of the throne forever. It is from his throne that God will build a house that will last forever. And then in verse six, he says that Jesus is the first this idea where he says, and again in verse six, he brings the firstborn into the world. Does not mean that Jesus was a created being or a created angel, for that is dipping into the heretical aspects of the Trinity where we negate Jesus to some created thing like an angel. In fact, this is doing the opposite, saying that Jesus is the firstborn in preeminence, in priority, in hierarchy. He is above it all. He has no beginning and has no end. He's actually the first. This we've already looked at in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then in verse 18, he's the firstborn of the dead. This idea of the firstborn speaks not to the first created being, but actually the first in rank and prominence and priority over all things that exist in power. Jesus in verse seven is likened to, there's a quote here from Psalm 104 where he quotes in this passage from a psalm elevating the greatness of God where he's making the point here that Jesus is creator, Jesus is the maker. In Psalm 104, the passage is glorifying God for his majesty and greatness. He is worshiping him, saying that he is all powerful. He is worthy of our worship. And so he's quoting here saying, let all God's angels worship him. And the greatness of God that his angels do not direct our worship, do not direct our attention. Angels are ultimately just ministering people, ministering spirits meant to serve the people of God and to, and to Jesus himself. And so this idea that let all God's angels worship him. Then in verse seven, he goes on that Jesus not only is the maker, creator of all things, that Jesus is king. We see in verse seven um, and eight here this idea that he is also the maker, of, and, and the deserver of worship, but he makes the angels, he makes the ministers, he's the one who's created all things and makes all things. And then in verse eight, that he is king. He holds the scepter in his hand. It is him that has the authority. Not only is he king, as a quote from Psalm 45, but he brings in a quote from Isaiah 61. And he says that this one is the anointed one. Remember the word Messiah means the anointed one. And in fact, when Jesus, the Messiah, steps into the synagogue in Nazareth to announce his public ministry, he reads and opens up the scroll of Isaiah and reads from Isaiah 61. I have come to proclaim this good news, as he says. And here, the author of Hebrews quotes and ties in Isaiah 61 in verse nine. Your God has anointed you the anointed one. He is the Messiah, the savior of the world, the people, of the, the savior of the Hebrew people and all. And then here in verse chapter, uh, verses 10 through 12, he quotes from Psalm 102, that God has laid the foundations of the world. God was there in the beginning and God will be there in the end. The angels have, were created and have a beginning, but God has no end. He's the alpha and the omega. So this idea that God has made the foundations, other things will wear out and perish like garments, as it says in verse 11 and 12. Other clothes will, will wear out, but God, Jesus, he never wears out, and he is eternal, he is immutable and unchanging. And then in verse 13, it says, sit at my right hand 
until I make my enemies a footstool at your feet. Jesus is the judge. He comes in power and authority, sits at the right hand of God and and his enemies, the enemies of the world, sit as a footstool of God. I found an interesting quote speaking about this that they've discovered there are hieroglyphics in Egypt that where they've, they've found hieroglyphic writing on footstools of, King Pharaoh, of the pharaohs. The pharaohs very uh, uh, purposely would use a footstool for their feet while they sat on a throne. And on that footstool there would be hieroglyphics of all the enemies that they hated, the enemies that they were putting under domination, the enemies that they were putting under their feet. And so this is a picture of, of God having the authority to put his enemies underneath his feet. And it's at this name, the name of Jesus, that commands this respect and worship and authority. This name that is above every name that is named. In fact, in Revelation, it speaks of how, how Jesus is the one who sends his angels to testify about these things, that he is the bright and morning star. In Acts 4, it says, there is no salvation in anyone else. There is no other name under heaven which given among men which you shall be saved. Ephesians 1 says, for above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and under his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. So whether it's the name of an angelic name of Michael, an angelic name of Gabriel, a, a patriarch of Moses and Abraham or David or Joshua, no name compares to the majesty of Jesus Christ. No name comes even close. And so as we gather this, as we take all this in, we say that is a, a worshipful text. Uh, your heart as a follower of Jesus should be elevated to look to Jesus, but yet the preacher in the text And the preacher in me comes into chapter two as we kind of conclude. It comes in to recognizing the knowledge and the ascent of our heart to understand the proper place of Jesus as king of the hill. (laughs) Yes, we can worship that. There's a recognition of that. There's a praising of that, but there's also something personal that comes back to all of us. What are you gonna do with that now? And so in chapter two, There's instruction that is given in chapter one and then there is, you could say, an application in chapter two where he warns us. He warns us in chapter two, verse one, therefore we must pay close attention. Isn't that that great? Has the preacher ever said that? Hey, listen up. Pay close attention. Don't fall asleep. Don't drift away. That's exactly what he's saying. He says avoid spiritual drift because in verse, chapter two, verse one, for we have all heard of this and yet, we may drift away from it. Be careful, pay attention. The image of drifting here is extremely potent. As we, we see in this idea, it could almost be this idea of something that slips or drifts. The idea from the word, even this idea that a ring that slips off the finger and is lost. Or an object that is going in the wrong direction as a slow pace. Or a piece of food, one writer said, that slips down into the windpipe and causes choking and alarm. There's harm that causes because of this. And so the, this, more for me, my mind is drawn immediately to a ship that's aiming for the harbor and immediately gets distracted and begins to drift away and eventually misses and is taken away by an extra current that is taking it in a dangerous direction. This idea of drifting carries into the same idea of, of drifting, of apathy, of ignoring the salvation that is presented to you by the grace of God. And so we ask ourselves, are we drifting? Are we ignoring? Are we apathetic to the things of God? Because how do we think that we're just going to escape and be saved when we neglect the great salvation of God? 
What are those currents, you could say, as we try to bring it in? What are the currents? What are the things that are distracting us and pulling us? For the authenticity and the authority and the superiority of Jesus is being verified to us in this passage. It is being presented to us. We should not neglect it. It is so important. And so we are told in this chapter, verse, chapter two, verse one, and then especially through verse four, He's building this message that Jesus is superior, and believe me, it's something you could trust. You could trust it. You could put your faith in it. He says in verse two, for since the message declared by the angels proved reliable. Reliable. It's something that's reliable. The message of the Old Testament and now the message of the new that was delivered. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Goodwill to men. That is a reliable message for Jesus demonstrated in his own life. And every, as you know in the, in the law, judgment is sure to follow those who break the law. And so we know in our sense in verse two, it says every transgression, every disobedience will receive retribution. Judgment is sure to come. You can bet on that, he says. And yet Jesus has declared this to us first in verse three. How shall we declare, how shall we escape such a great salvation? For it was declared at first by the Lord. And then it was attested to us by those who have heard it. So Jesus has declared this message of salvation. We have heard this maybe with our own ears. We've heard it passed down from the apostles and given to us now. And we are now hearing it with our own ears as the scripture is read for us here in Jaffer, New Hampshire. We are hearing the testimony of who Jesus is and his saving work. God then gives witness to verify all of these things. You can look back in the Old Testament how signs and wonders and miracles, the, the Red Sea stands up. You know? We crossed the Jordan River as God parted it. He gave us manna in the wilderness. When Jesus came, he healed and he did miracles and he verified the power and the authority of God over these things. His miraculous power works and we have seen it with our own eyes and now we live in that power of the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit, it says in verse four, has now distributed spiritual gifts according to his will among the churches in which you are living in right now. So not only have you seen it, not have you heard of it, not have you been taught about it, but you're living in it as you've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. So he's saying this is verified. This is trustworthy. This is reliable. So how great a tragedy is it if you neglect such a great message of God? What a tragedy, he's saying, if you neglect the great salvation of God that is offered to you as a free gift. It's a perfect Christmas illustration, a gift to us that we only receive through grace and through faith. What a lack of respect it would be that the king of the hill stands on you and then comes down and, and he offers you salvation, his own self, and what a lack of respect it would be to just not listen to him, as the word would say, to neglect what he says, to not pay attention, to ignore, to fall asleep, to drift away from the only place of salvation known to man, the name of Jesus. For it's the name of Jesus, it's his name that what we call wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. Are we worshiping that Jesus? Are we, in a sense, falling on our knees? Tim Chester, in this Advent Meditations we've been going through here, some of you may have it, but I think it's on page 25, he, he ultimately says there's a phrase that's used, follow the money, right? Have you ever heard of that? When, when you're looking at a situation, follow the money and know where it goes. I could say for the Christian church, for your life, I could look at your life and I would say, follow the worship. Who are you worshiping? 
follow the worship. What is it, who is it that you are choosing to give your worship to? The author of Hebrews is imploring you, don't neglect the worship of Jesus Christ, for he alone is your salvation. There is salvation in no other name, no other place except in Jesus Christ. And in the song that we think of, there is only one response. There is only one response when we come into the presence of God. It is to fall on our knees and to worship him as a savior of the world, the creator, the exact imprint, the radiance of God's glory, a name that is greater than any angelic being, a name that is greater above all other names. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared, he appeared, imagine that, the king of the hill, he, he is on top and superior, yet he humbles himself and takes on the form of a servant and walks and takes on flesh until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, we have hope, Jesus is here, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And at that, what is our response? Fall on your knees and hear the angels' voices. (laughs) They hear the angels' voices singing the praise of Jesus Christ. O night divine, O night when Christ was born, O holy night. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we think of you today. We worship you today as best we know how. We encounter you through your word. And God, we are amazed, even as Peter, I think, says that the angels are long to look into the things of salvation and of man. Lord, I don't even understand as to why you would come in such a manner and save people like us. What is man that you are mindful of him? Yet today, God, we give you our praise because we give you our lives as living sacrifices. We worship you. We give you the glory. You are deserving of it. You are deserving of all worship that we could ever give. And yet you, God, are, 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 you are everything to us. We thank you, Father, for your good grace, the message of salvation, the good news. And today, God, we sing to you in praising you for that holy night, that day when you have changed the world forever. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.